Paul Kreft starts off his book, Prayer for Beginners, with these words. Why prayer is more important than eating. Eating keeps your body alive. And prayer keeps your soul alive. Prayer is more important than eating because your soul is more important than your body. Soul is more important than your body because your soul is you. Your personality, yourself. You will get a new body after death and the resurrection at the end of the world. But you will not get a new soul. You only purify and sanctify your old one because you are your soul. That's the you that gets a new body is your soul. Praying keeps your soul alive because prayer is real contact with God. And as and God is the life of the soul as the soul is the life of the body. If you do not pray, your soul will wither. Just as if you do not eat, your body will wither. What a great way to start a book on prayer. Why is prayer more important than eating? I know some of you out there right now, I shouldn't talk about eating, right? But why is it more important? Because our souls are more important than our bodies. Just think about that thought for a moment. But that many of you would agree with that truth. Our souls are more important than our bodies. Our souls will go into eternity while our bodies will die and decay. We know the truth. You might even have heard it said that we are not bodies with souls, but we are souls with bodies. We know the truth. Two plus two equals four. We kind of believe this truth in an academic way. Our souls are more important than our bodies. The Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, Train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. Having a healthy body is good. It is of value. But having a healthy soul is of value in every way. Because it not only helps in our present life, but also in the life to come. Our souls are more important than our bodies. We agree with that. I believe it. But do I really? You believe it. But do you really? Perhaps this morning, this truth will shake you up a little bit like it shook me up. Is there evidence in my life that I actually believe praying is more important than eating because my soul is more important than my body? Is there evidence in your life by your actions, that you actually believe that prayer is more important than eating because a soul is that important. How much time do I spend a day in prayer? How much time do I spend a day eating? If the way we actually live our lives shows what we truly believe, then is there any evidence in our lives that we actually believe that prayer is that important? I dare say that the evidence is stacked up against me and probably stacked up against you as well. See, if you're like me, we spend significantly more amount of time tending to our bodies than we do to our souls. The evidence in our life would suggest that we actually believe that eating is more important than praying. 
The evidence in our lives would suggest that we actually believe that a healthy body is more important than a healthy soul because we spend significantly more time on having a healthy body than we do on having a healthy soul. If we do not eat, our, our body withers and weakens and loses its strength and wastes away. We all know that. We feel that hunger is a natural reminder to eat, to take care of our body. If we do not pray, our soul withers and weakens, loses its strength and wastes away. We all know that. We feel that spiritual hunger, the spiritual hunger, that longing for our soul's nourishment. It's a reminder to take care of our souls. Don't you wish you were as tuned in to your spiritual hunger as you were to your physical hunger? I know I do. David in Psalm 63 was tuned in. Listen to this. Oh God, you are my God. Earnestly I seek you. My soul thirsts for you. My flesh faints for you. In a dry and weary land where there is no water. So I've looked upon you in the sanctuary, beholding your power and glory, because your steadfast love is better than life. My lips will praise you. So I will bless you as long as I live. In your name, I will lift up my hands. My soul will be satisfied. My soul will be satisfied as with fat and rich foods. And my mouth will praise you with joyful lips. When I remember you upon my bed and meditate on you and the watches in the night, for you have been my help in the shed of your wings, I sing for joy. My soul clings to you. Your right hand upholds me. Don't you long, as Jesus said in Matthew 5, 6, to hunger and thirst for righteousness just as much as we hunger and thirst for physical food? Don't you wish that your soul was tuned in to your spiritual hunger as your body is tuned in to your physical hunger? I believe, we believe that our soul is more important than our body. It's a question for us, for me. So we're going to live that way or not? When are we going to get as concerned about our spiritual health as we are about our physical health? Okay, I'm going to try to do something here. I'm not very good at this. I'm going to try this, okay? It's very embarrassing, but I'm going to do it anyway. You know the kid's song, right? Maybe you know it. I was able to go to Children's Church for for a few months of my life when we lived in a trailer um, behind Berean Baptist Church in Shannon, Illinois, and I loved Junior Church. I loved Junior Church. They'd always have to tell me, don't sing so loud. You don't have to scream the song, right? Well, here's one of the songs we learned in junior church, and many of you probably know it, right? You kind of start off a little scrouch. You go, read your Bible, pray every day, pray every day, pray every day. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. And you'll grow, grow, grow. And you'll grow, 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 and you get as tall as you can. Read your Bible, pray every day, and you'll grow, grow, grow. Neglect your Bible, forget to pray, forget to pray, forget to pray. Neglect your Bible, forget to pray, and you shrink, shrink, shrink. And you shrink, shrink, shrink. This is fun. And you shrink, shrink, 
shrink, neglect your Bible, forget to pray, and you shrink, shrink, shrink. That is a powerful song. Is it not? It's this crazy, simple little kid's song. What truth, though, right? Is your soul growing? How do you grow your soul? Read your Bible. Pray every day. Is your soul shrinking? Neglect your Bible and forget to pray. Why is prayer more important than eating? Eating helps your body to stay alive. Prayer brings life to your soul. May we today truly believe, not just with our minds, but with our actions. So let's look at the last three aspects of prayer and a model prayer in Matthew chapter 6, verse 11 through 15. Matthew chapter 6, verses 11 through 15. These are Jesus' words. And he said, Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our debts, as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Whereas the first three aspects of the prayer were all about God, his worship, his adoration, his name, his character, his kingdom, his will. These last three aspects of the teaching on prayer are about us, about our connection to the Father for for his sustaining of our lives, for his forgiveness of our sin, for his leading in our lives. The first petition there in verse 11 is, Give us this day our daily bread. We pray for the sustenance of the Father. This means exactly what it says. Before we look at the spiritual application of this verse, let's just look at what it directly means. What's the practical application? Jesus was teaching his disciples to pray to the Father for their physical needs. Jesus is teaching that it's okay, proper, and good to pray to God for our physical needs. It is fitting and godly to pray to God to sustain us. Every day for them was a struggle to get enough food to eat. It was subsistence living. For a lot of their daily life was all about obtaining and maintaining the minimum necessities of life, like food and shelter and clothing and warmth. Praying for our daily bread was literally for them, praying for their daily bread. Few of us has ever prayed such a prayer. Few of us have ever went to our cupboards and they were bare, to our refrigerators and they were empty. And truly in need of our daily bread. By God's amazing blessings, we most often have more food than we can eat. And I'm afraid to say that the size of our waistline sometimes show that. So how are we, in our day of abundance, supposed to apply this verse? I read once where someone said this is the reason why we pray so much in our day for our medical needs and health. Whereas it was fitting and godly for them to pray to sustain them with the daily bread. And since God has already overly, abundantly supplied our daily bread and thanksgiving, in our day it is fitting 
and godly for us to pray for God to sustain us and our health. If we did not have our daily bread, guess what would be our first prayer? If the cupboards were bare and the refrigerator was empty, guess what would be our first prayer? Give us this day our daily bread. But since he's already given us our daily bread, so often our first prayer of sustenance to God, of dependence upon God, comes to our health. It's our broken and frail bodies that drive us to our knees in prayer to God. It's good and godly to pray for God to sustain us in our health, for it reminds us what is most important. It reminds us who is most important, that it's about him and his glory. It's about his will and his kingdom. It's about his purpose and his plan. Jesus is teaching us to come to him with our prayers of dependence, to express our needs, to express a desire to have God fulfill his will in our lives by meeting our needs. It is fitting and godly to have the back of our bulletin so often filled with the health needs. For this is our expression of dependence. It's asking God for his sustenance. This is give us this day our daily bread. Two other quick thoughts on give us this day our daily bread. First is, This is only one of six aspects of prayer that Jesus taught in his model prayer. It is one-sixth of the model prayer. So often this becomes the greatest portion of our prayer life, when in reality it's only supposed to be just a portion. This is often the most simplest part of praying, because we can readily see our needs and our dependence upon God. So as we learn to pray... We need to pay greater attention to those aspects of the model prayer that we're not so good at praying. We need to grow in those other aspects of prayer, the adoration and the thanksgiving and the praise, the focus on God's will and the focus on his kingdom, the confession of our sins and the commitment of our lives to his leading. The second quick thought is that we can apply this verse to our spiritual health. For our spiritual hunger, our spiritual bread, our soul's spiritual nourishment. Praying, give us this day our daily bread is also a way of praying for our daily need of spiritual sustenance for our souls. If you'd like, you can turn to John chapter 6, verses 32 through 35. John 6, 32 through 35. Listen to these amazing words from our Lord. Jesus then said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. They said to him, Sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. Jesus is the bread of life. Jesus is the sustenance for our soul. The bread who came down from heaven and gives life to the world. The only sustenance that satisfies a soul is Jesus, for he is the bread of life. 
In John 4, after meeting the woman at the well, the disciples returned with food for Jesus to eat. Verse 31 and following says, Meanwhile, the disciples were urging him, saying, Rabbi, eat. But he said to them, I have food to eat that you do not know about. So the disciples are saying to one another, Has anyone brought him something to eat? And Jesus said to him, My food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. The very sustenance of Jesus' life was to do the will of the Father. The very sustenance of our souls, of our lives, is to do the will of him who died for us. Give us this day our daily bread as a prayer for our souls to find their daily nourishment in Jesus, in his word, in prayer, the bread of life, and doing his will. Give us this day our daily bread as a prayer of dependence on God for his sustenance for our bodies and souls. The next petition is in verse 12. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We are to pray for the forgiveness of the Father. Sin here is pictured as a debt that must be paid. Therefore, forgiveness is the releasing of one's debt. Confessing our sins should be a regular part of our prayers. Confessing our sins reminds us of the cost of our forgiveness. Confessing our sins helps us to get back onto the road of obedience. Confessing our sins prompts in our hearts a renewed passion for the gospel that saved us. Confessing our sins softens our heart to God's will and softens our attitudes towards others. Confessing our sins rightfully humbles our pride, rightfully exposes our selfishness. Confessing our sins is not a morbid introspection, but it's an honest view of who we are. We, we pray asking God to forgive us our debts, our trespasses, our sins. When you think of confession, when you think of confession in the Bible, think about Psalm 32, Psalm 51. Chapters in the Bible that need to come to your mind when you think of confession. When you need to go to the Lord in confession and you don't know what words to say, turn to Psalm 32 or to Psalm 51. Listen as I read the beginning of Psalm 51. David wrote, Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you may be justified in your words, blameless in your judgment. See, confession isn't just good for the soul. Confession is necessary for the soul. But that's not all this petition says. It's important to note that this is the only petition with divine commentary. Look down if you're there in in Matthew chapter 6 to verses 14 and 15. After Jesus ends his teaching on the model prayer, he specifically expands on his teaching in this petition. He says, for if you forgive others their trespasses... Your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. You see, receiving forgiveness and giving forgiveness 
Both are at the heart of what it means to be a follower of Christ. Ephesians 4.32 summarizes this truth in an amazing way. It says, be kind, compassionate to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. See, the basis of our forgiveness from God is the grace of God given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. And the basis of our forgiveness to others is the grace of God given to us through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ for our sins. As we are forgiven, so should we forgive. The most forgiving people on planet earth are supposed to be followers of Jesus Christ. Why? Because we know how much we've been forgiven. We know the incredible price that was paid because of our sins and our need for forgiveness. We have no right as believers to withhold our forgiveness because Jesus has paid for our forgiveness. And that cost way far supersedes any cost of our forgiving someone else. You see, forgiven people forgive. Forgiveness is a mark of being a child of God and a mark of living like a child of God and must be the mark of his church. May Poland Village Baptist Church be known as a place of forgiveness. If you withhold your forgiveness from others, Jesus is challenging you right now. Jesus' words himself are challenging you to examine. Do you really understand the forgiveness that has been given to you through him and by him and because of him on the cross? Jesus tells this amazing parable in Matthew chapter 18. If you'd like to turn there, Matthew 18, starting at verse 21. Peter uh, gives this remark and then Jesus responds with a parable. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I have to forgive the guy? As many as seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you seven times, but 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven may be compared to a king who wished to settle accounts with his servants. When he began to settle, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. What is that? Think about this now. A talent was worth 20 years wages. One talent, 20 years wages. So the man owed the king 200,000 years worth of salary. Okay, Jesus used this number specifically. Because it's so large, it's, it's practically incalculable. It's the largest number he could think of. The scripture goes on to say, and since he could not pay, his master ordered him to be sold with his wife and his children and all that he had, and payment be made. So the servant fell on his knees, imploring, have patience with me, and I will pay you everything. Impossible to pay. But, out of pity for him, the master of the servant released him. And forgave him the debt. 
See, the servant was forgiven a debt that's, that's larger beyond anyone's imagination. The point is, is that the king's grace, the king's forgiveness is more powerful, more abundant than that insurmountable debt. But when the same servant went out, he found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. And seizing him, he began to choke him, saying, pay what you owe me. Now, a denarii was worth one day's wage. So this man owed him 100 days worth of wages or four months of salary. So what's the comparison here? 200,000 years worth of wages to four months of wages. So his fellow servant fell down and pleaded with him. Have patience with me and I will pay you. But he refused and he put him in prison until he should pay the debt. When his fellow servants saw what had taken place, they were greatly distressed. And they went and reported it to their master, all that had taken place. Then the master summoned him and said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all that debt because you pleaded with me. Should not you have had mercy on your fellow servant as I had mercy on you? And in anger, his master delivered him over to the jailers until he should pay all his debt. So also my heavenly father will do to every one of you if you do not forgive your brother from your heart. Powerful story. Do you get the point? Forgiven people forgive. We've been forgiven an insurmountable debt. Think about this. You have a debt that is so huge it can't even be calculated. I have a debt that by sin that is so huge, it is incalculable. But yet we have a king that is so gracious and so merciful, so powerful, so abundant. We have a king that took this debt of ours and said, forgiven. Wiped it away. Took it. How did he do that? He died on the cross Bearing the wrath of God's judgment on our sin so that he could offer us life, eternal life, abundant life, hope. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. 1 Corinthians 6.20 says, For you were bought with a price. Revelation 5, 9 says, and they sang a new song saying, worthy are you, Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. We were ransomed, redeemed, rescued, bought by the blood, the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. The only response For receiving such forgiveness is to offer that forgiveness to others. So this morning, there's unforgiveness in your heart. If you have trouble forgiving someone, then look to Jesus. Look at what he did for you to forgive you of your sins. Look at the price he paid. Look at the love he showed. And then step forward in faith and from your heart, offer forgiveness. Now, it might not be easy. It might be very, very hard. And the pain in your life might be 
excruciatingly real. So let's be honest. Seek help. Seek counsel. Go to your best Christian friend. Come to your pastor. Work on it. Because it is God's expectation in our life that forgiven people forgive. We who know the abounding grace of God must in response be gracious. We who know the steadfast love of God must in response be loving. We who know the vast mercy of God must in response be merciful. We who know Jesus must in response be like Jesus. We're to pray for our daily bread, for our physical needs, and for the nourishment of our souls. We're to pray confessing our sins for the strength and and grace to forgive those who hurt us. And in the last petition, we're to pray, lead us not into, into temptation, but deliver us from evil. We're to pray for the leading of the Father. Now, we know from James 1.13 that God does not tempt anyone. James 1.13 says, let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. So God never leads anyone into temptation to sin. So this prayer is not asking God to not lead us into temptation like he's going to take us there into temptation because he never leads anyone into temptation, never. So one of the traditional ways of understanding this verse is to understand that the very same word for temptation and tempting is the word for testing. That It's the actual same word. And thus the essence of this prayer is asking God to not test our faith, but to deliver us from the evil one. Go back a chapter or two to Matthew chapter 4. Jesus, under the direct testing of Satan was delivered from him. James 1.12 says, Blessed is a man who remains steadfast under trial, for when he has stood the test, same word, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love them. Testing is a real part of our faith. Yet it's not something we pray to get into. But as James 1.2-4 says, we are to count it all joy. My brothers, when we meet trials of various kinds, because we know that the testing of our faith produces steadfastness, and steadfastness will have its full effect that we may be perfect, complete, lacking nothing. In seminary, we discussed this verse in the Lord's Prayer. I think there's another way of looking at this verse that is perhaps more immediately understood by those hearing Jesus preach on that day trying to see this verse from a Hebrew-Jewish mindset. In much typical Hebrew poetry, the second phrase helps further define the first phrase. I think the second half of this verse helps us define the first half of this verse. As we said earlier, we know that God never leads anyone into temptation. James 1.14 tells us, who does? But each person is tempted when he was, is lured and enticed by his own desire. It's us who lead us into temptation. By declaring what God is not going to do, 
It's kind of a Hebrew way of actually asking God to lead us away from temptation, to deliver us from temptation, like the second half of the verse is asking God to deliver us from the evil one. One commentator rendered the verse this way, lead us not into into temptation, but away from it, into righteousness, into situations where far from being tempted, we will be protected and therefore kept righteous and be delivered from the evil one. The point of this prayer is actually asking God to lead us away from temptation, to to deliver us from Satan. This verse is an appeal for God's intimate, direct leadership and protection in our lives. Left to our own direction and defense, we embrace temptation. We fall into the snare of the evil one. So our hearts cry out for God's direction, for God's defense in our life. For he alone can lead us away from temptation. For he alone can break the grip of the evil one in our lives. We pray, oh, Father, I pray that I may not enter into temptation. Lead my heart away from it. Lead me to you. Lead me away from temptation. Lead me to your righteousness. Lead me to your strength and grace. Lead me away from Satan and his schemes. Oh, God, please deliver me. From the evil one. Lord, please lead me and guide me and direct me. Another commentator concluded his thoughts on this verse saying, In a cursed world where we are battered by evil all around us, we confess our inadequacy to deal with evil. We confess our weakness of flesh and the absolute impotency of our human resources to combat sin and to rescue us from its clutches. And above all, we confess our need for his protection and deliverance from our loving Heavenly Father. It is the passion and prayer of every follower of God to be led by God, to have his direction and his defense in our lives. Guide me, O thou great Jehovah, pilgrim through this barren land. I am weak, but thou art mighty. Hold me with thy powerful hand. That's the heart, the essence of the sixth petition. So let's summarize the six petitions as of the model prayer. We are to pray in worship and adoration, thanksgiving to God, our Father. We are to pray acknowledging the character, the attributes of God, hallowed be thy name. We are to pray for God's kingdom to increase, for God's will to be done. Prayer is not aligning God's will with our will. Prayer is aligning our will with God's will. We are to pray for our daily bread, both physical needs and spiritual nourishment for our souls. We are to pray for forgiveness, confessing our sins in light of the great grace And we are to offer that forgiveness to others. We're to pray for his leadership in our lives, directing us away from sin, away from the schemes of the evil one, and into his righteousness and truth. One final quote from that same book that I started the sermon with. The man said, prayer is easier than we think. We want to think it's too hard or too high or too holy for us, because that gives us an excuse for not doing it. This is false humility. We can all do it, he says. Even the most sinful, shallow, silly, and stupid of us. He said that. You do not have to master some mystical method. 
You don't have to master a method at all. Can you talk to a friend? Then you can talk to God, for he's your friend. And that's what prayer is. The single most important piece of advice about prayer is one word. Begin. God makes it easy. Just do it. It's a great quote. I've put a resource on the foyer table here in the back of the chapel, right there by Buck. It's a blue um, resource. I was going to bring one up and I forgot to. It's a great prayer tool. Take one on your way out. It gives you themes and, and theme days and ways to write it down and the, and the acronym of ACTS to help you organize prayer and doing things. It puts it in manageable chunks of prayer. It's a helpful tool. So take one. If you've lost it, take another one. Uh, use it. I use it. Do the single most important thing about prayer. Begin. Remember, eating keeps your body alive. Prayer keeps our souls alive. May we pray. May we begin. Let's pray. Father, now these words in this sermon, where they are right on, use them and challenge. Where they are dross, pull them away. Because we want your spirit to challenge us right now. We don't want to be stirred. We want to be changed. We don't want to come here and hear the same people that, that leave here. We want to come in here having met with your Holy Spirit, having worshipped you in truth, having investigated and been challenged by your word. We want to leave here more conformed to the image of Jesus. And Jesus taught us to pray. Help us to pray. Help us to begin. In Jesus' name, amen.